as we have been going through this book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, our main theme is to follow the, low, the line, the chosen line, the seed of the woman. And that has been the theme all the way through. Sometimes we've almost felt as though it was going to collapse, almost to disappear. But the Lord would have his purposes. And he overroared and things were continuing. And we have come now to the family of Jacob. And in chapter 37 of Genesis, we will take up the story of Jacob again. But here in this 36th chapter of Genesis, Moses, the author of Genesis, is taking us in a slightly different line for a moment because he is looking at the lineage of Esau. In the midst of the story of Jacob, Moses records for us the line of descent from Jacob's twin brother Esau. This was not the line of promise that would take us to David and on to the Messiah. That would come through Jacob and then through Judah. So why put it in here? Why bother? Why are we interested in someone who was a rebellion against God? Uh, Those who've been uh, here before when I've been preaching may remember we looked at some of that in some of the earlier chapters of Genesis that God in his wisdom records these things for our benefit. Now the purpose of this genealogical chapter is to trace Esau's settlement in the land of Edom, his immediate succession and his descendants into the, that inhabit the land of Seir. The Edomites, that's those who came from Esau, would become Israel's mortal enemies. In fact, we find them coming up in all sorts of places. Uh, During the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness, we find that it is Edom who refused any aid for the people of God, Numbers 20. Then Edom Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. This genealogy also serves to demonstrate that the seed of the serpent that's the non-covenanted people, are alive and well on planet Earth. And as one commentator reflects, they are increasing and being fruitful. And we see that so much in the day in which we live. And the commentator says, they're increasing and being fruitful, and the question we are left with now is, how will God take care of his elect? How will he fulfil his promises to the seed of the woman? Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, were an important nation. They became a significant factor in the history of Israel. Yet they were a nation destined for destruction. We saw that as we read together that prophecy of Obadiah. And we'll return to that again in a little while. So let's look then, first of all, the rise and fall of this nation. Esau was to become the head of a large nation, and they would uh, occupy a very substantial uh, area of land. There was great prosperity. The opening verses of this 36th chapter of Genesis tells us and makes it clear that Esau had become extremely wealthy. He had many possessions, an enlarged family. The promises, you see, made by God to Abraham and to Isaac were being fulfilled. 
the promises that God had made to both Abraham and to Isaac were for the generations to come, that they would be blessed, that we'd be made many nations, they would uh, see much prosperity. And this comes upon Esau as well as Jacob. It's not only the line of the seed of the woman that would receive a blessing. God had brought promises to Ishmael, and so he also brought prosperity to Esau. Not only that, we see that Esau gained prosperity even in the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we can see a possible application in some of this by noting this, as one of the commentators underlines, that if the non-elect line of Esau saw promised blessing in Canaan, then surely this was a great encouragement for Israel to believe that all the blessings promised to their forefathers would be fulfilled by God in his own good time. And that these promises would be fully and completely realised in the coming of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Such things are a sure reminder that for those who trust and believe in the Lord Jesus, their full and final blessing still lies in the future. The Christian walks by faith, not by sight. Others may ridicule what we believe. I'm sure those in the streets around here today would just mock us if they knew what we were doing in here this evening. They mock the fact that we believe in the word of God. They would mock the fact that we delight to worship God, that we delight to sing his praises. And sometimes our faith is tested. But this is the world that we are living in. But the Christian looks forward with great anticipation to the appearing of our God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, as one commentator writes, if unbelieving Esau experienced the promised temporal blessings, how much more will believers enter into the promised heavenly inheritance guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection and the indwelling spirit? See what I'm saying? If, in fact, Esau and those who are outside of the kingdom of God, of those who've rebelled, those who are opposed had received the promised blessings that had come through that line, how much more then will we receive the promise of the internal inheritance that is ours in Christ? Now, time doesn't allow us this evening to go through this genealogy of Esau to look all the various uh, descendants. He had five sons, ten grandsons, plus daughters, granddaughters, and he became a great nation. He had many descendants. Let me just mention one of them, Teman, because he comes up in some of the other passages in Scripture. The inhabitants of Teman were interesting because they were renowned for their wisdom. And the prophet Jeremiah refers to the wisdom of the inhabitants of the region that became known as Teman. And they were a people, although they did not accept God, they didn't follow God, they had a great respect for God. And for example, we come across one such descendant of Teman in the book of Job, where we read that Job was instructed by God to offer sacrifice and intercede for Eliphaz, the Temite. This is just one example of people who did not belong to the line of promise 
but yet participated in the spiritual blessings of the promise. And we can see in this that it's a reminder that our background is no barrier to grace and salvation in the day in which we live. The gospel today is available to all who will believe, to all who receive that gift of faith from God, all who know his grace, all who turn from their sins and come in true repentance and faith. And their background is of no consequence. It doesn't matter if their background has come from uh, those who've been utterly opposed to God, rebellious to God, blaspheming of God. It doesn't matter if uh, they come from whatever race or tribe or nation or tongue. Before God, we come as sinners. We come as sinners in need of salvation. And that promise of that salvation is to be found in Christ. As I said, Esau had many family, five sons, ten grandsons. Many of them became chiefs and kings, leaders of people, gaining influence and wealth. Not only the Edomites had descended from Esau, but one of the other nations, the Amalekites. They too were a godless people who set their hearts against God's people, Israel. The Amalekites were the first to attack Israel after they left Egypt. They were a people who did not fear God, but attacked a weary and defenceless people. But God would not be not mocked. We read in Deuteronomy 25, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers of your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess the inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven you shall not forget. You see what was happening was that from Esau there were these tribes, these nations coming and so many of them were godless they had inherited the thinking of Esau. Esau's descendants would set about conquering and subduing of the original inhabitants of Edom. This would anticipate the conquering of Canaan by the Israelites nearly 500 years later. But it would seem that those who were opposed to God would gain quick prominence, but those who stood in the line of promise had to wait the working out of God's promises. By contrast, Jacob's descendants lagged behind, and even by the time of the Exodus, could not call themselves a nation. Esau seemed far more prosperous, far more advanced, far more of uh, possessions than Jacob had, even though Jacob had the promise. Matthew Henry comments on this and says this, God's promise to Jacob began to work late, but the effect of it remained longer and it had its complete accomplishment in the spiritual Israel. You see, God will always bring about what he has decreed in his time and God's people are called to wait patiently for him. 
And then we see in these words the destruction of Edom. There was easy success for him, quick accumulation of wealth. Everything seemed to be going well with the Edomite dynasty. And no doubt this added to their godlessness. We're doing very well without God, thank you very much. And isn't that the philosophy of so many in the age in which we live? Why do we need God? We're all having to suffer with the COVID thing, but otherwise, apart from that, well, we're doing very well. But you see, success will be short-lived. As in the days of Cain, worldly people seem to advance rapidly. The kingdoms of this world seem to flourish at the expense of the kingdom of God. But we take heart in the promises of God. For although it seemed delayed, we can be assured what the final announcement will be, as we find recorded for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That prophecy of Obadiah we read reminds us right at the very end of the judgment that would come upon Esau and his generations. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That phrase, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Our God is in control. He is sovereign. God's people would possess the land, Obadiah 17. But on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. As the Lord Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. John Calvin wrote this, There is therefore no reason why the faithful who slowly pursue their way should envy the quick children of this world their rapid succession of delights, since the happiness which the Lord promises them is far more stable We have that expressed in Psalm 102. The children of your servants will continue as their descendants will be established before you. Another commentator named Leopold wrote this. The race of the godly goes on and on. It is neither exterminated nor overcome, but is rather endlessly established before the Lord. And how we need that encouragement in the day in which we live that the kingdom of God is established and nothing but nothing can overcome it. It will be there endlessly and it will be there established for God's people. Edom would eventually be destroyed. During the intervening period from Moses to the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, the relations between Israel and Edom would deteriorate. Although Israel treated Edom as a brother, Edom never responded. Many a battle would be fought between the descendants of the twin brothers, the descendants of Esau. They were a proud and arrogant people, and their attitude to Judah was particularly shocking, particularly when Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians. 
They rejoiced in the people's misery. They looted their possessions and put death to death anyone who came in their way. And Obadiah prophesied their demise, as did Jeremiah. Jeremiah 49, against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Eden, for I will bring calamity of Esau upon them, <coughs> the time that I will punish him. But we can't leave it there. The prophecies against Edom are seen as part of the bigger picture. For Edom typifies the proud nations of the world who set themselves up against God and his people. Those who act like the prince of darkness whom they serve. Pride as such is an affront to God. And Edom has become symbolic of the ungodly forces arrayed against the people of God. And as the judgment of Edom is an example of what lies ahead for a world in rebellion against God, as one other commentator stated, the seed of the woman will bring an end to all opposition. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So Edom was set for destruction. But we can't just leave it there. We need to raise a question now. We need to say, why, what happened? Where did this journey to destruction start for the Edomites? What can we learn from it? And the overall theme that we're coming to now, secondly, is despising God and his people. The story of Esau and the Edomites was a warning to Israel not to treat the covenant of God with contempt. They entered that covenant by grace. And perhaps bringing it up to today, the reminder is that we are not to despise the Christian influences in our lives. One of the great privileges uh, that children and young people can have is to be taught the Bible in the home, to attend church, perhaps be taught the things of God even in school. And their serious warnings are given to those who experience those blessings, yet then turn away from God. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, he says in chapter 6 and verse 4 and following, for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Esau despised his birthright. Yeah, the verse 1 of chapter 36 says, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is called Edom. Now Edom literally means red. He was red when he was born, if you remember the story of the birth of the twins. And he is called Edom, or Red, in memory of the time when he sold his birthright because of his craving for the red stew. Esau's link with the despising of his birthright is retained and emphasised. This is the theme that comes out 
Esau not only despised his birthright, but it was something which went with him throughout his life and was really passed on to the generations to come. Whereas Jacob, it was not a particularly savoury character to start with. However, his past problems were superseded by his experience of God at Penuel when he wrestled with God. And later we find his name is changed to Israel. And the future nation is known as Israel, which brings the emphasising of their relationship to God. Esau's dynasty is forever known as being associated with the liking for the red stuff, the despising of his birthright. Esau sold his birthright for a plate of stew. And this betrayed the fact that, God, that Esau despised God and his promises rather than the unseen spiritual blessings associated with God's covenant. The writer to the Hebrews draws our attention to this as a warning against spurning the grace of God. Hebrews 12, verse 15, Looking carefully, lest anyone shall fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. This reminds us that hearing the gospel, sitting in a place like this, with all the failings and the weakness of the words of the preacher, but it is the place where the grace of God is preached. In the home, excuse me, with Christian parents, it is the grace of God being taught to the children. It is those things which bring grace. And we are not to despise it. We're not to reject it. God will hold us to account. Esau's attitude towards God spilled over to his children and the succeeding generations. And surely that's a, a, a timely reminder to all those who are parents that our attitude to God displayed in the home can have serious consequences in the way our children respond to God and his word. But Esau not only despised his birthright, he despised his family roots. He led an ungodly way of life. He had no real interest in the commands of God or in his own family. The idea of the chosen family meant nothing to him. But we read in verse 2 of chapter 36, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. The people of Abraham were only to marry within the family and not take wives <coughs> from the pagan nations around them. But Esau deliberately chose wives from outside the family. He was effectively snubbing his nose at God. Well, we can see in this the reminder that Christians are not to marry non-Christians, and we have dealt with that on a previous occasion. For those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous do not mix. But perhaps the more relevant application of this to all of us, even here this evening, is to see that Esau sought the closest possible union with those who themselves rejected and despised God. And it was this union with sinful people will add impetus 
to Esau's downfall. And the obvious warning to you and I here this evening is to beware of becoming entangled in close relationships with unbelievers. Sadly, this has led many away from the Lord. Esau despised his family. He despised his birthright. And Esau despised the land of promise. Both Jacob and Esau were blessed with many possessions. And like Abraham and Lot, there came a time when they went their separate ways. Esau decided to move away, verses 6 and 8 of chapter 36. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, all his animals, all his goods that he gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Esau was more concerned with keeping the amount of wealth that he has accumulated than staying in the land of promise. He was more concerned to hang on to everything, his wives, his children, all the monies accumulated, the animals, the cattle, all the goods, than to stay where God has promised those blessings that would come. These words remind us of Abraham and Lot. Prosperity had brought its problems. Esau moved away from the presence of his brother out of the promised land. And in fact, this was unwittingly fulfilling the blessing that the father had given Esau. Genesis 27:40. by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Like Lot, Esau moved east away from the land which God had promised to give Abraham's descendants. And in moving away from Canaan, he turned his back on God's gift and on the places which meant so much for the people of God. Esau was living by sight, not by faith. He looked for present gain and advantage and despised the divine promises associated with God's revelation. He took his pleasure in the things of the world. And these are the warnings to those who are of the household of faith. Those who put advancing careers in front of serving God. Those who are more concerned to live in nice homes in nice areas rather than be identified with a local church in its locality. You see, so often these things start small. You know, my wife and I were talking earlier today and we said, you know, so often we're reflecting back on a couple we knew many years ago who drifted right away from God. And it started with a number of little, very small things which you hardly noticed. And they got a little bit more and they got more and more and they started missing the occasional prayer meeting. And then they started missing the occasional service and then they didn't come at all. And they started going somewhere else for a little while because... They wanted another church in all its attraction, but that wasn't the real reason. And slowly they drifted and they drifted and they drifted away from God. Sadly, the last we heard of them, they were nowhere in the Lord. We pray for them, but that is so often and so typical of that which can happen. Things that start small, yet can be the means of taking us away from the Lord. 
To put it bluntly, let's make sure that we are not among those like Esau. As the writer to the Hebrews warns in chapter 10 and verse 39, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe in the saving of the soul. Well, we must draw things to a close here this evening. There's just one more point that I want us to think about as we close, and it is this, loving our enemies. We might say, well, where does that come from in what we've been looking at this evening? There is a reminder here that the people of God are never given excuse to hate or despise those in the world. The fact that Esau and his descendants were not of the chosen line did not give Israel grounds for hating them or treating them with disdain. The close relationship between Jacob and Esau reminds us that they were blood brothers, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. They were in a much closer relationship than that which existed between Isaac and Ishmael or Abraham and Lot. Israel was again reminded this in the law dealing with those who were to be excluded from the full membership of the covenant community. Deuteronomy 23. For you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he's your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. And we learn from this that we are all blood brothers, for we are all descended from Adam and Eve. And therefore we are to have a compassion on all people, irrespective of tribe or race or nation or colour or tongue. You know, sometimes close relatives of Christians can be very cruel. In fact, Jesus warns of such things in Matthew 10. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and children will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Though we can expect to be hated by all for the sake of Christ, yet we are still called to love our enemies. And I say to you, love your enemies Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, that you may, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. All are our blood brothers, and therefore we may not hate them or treat them with disdain, but we are called to love them and show compassion. And I would suggest there is no better way of showing that love and compassion than to share the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's God's prerogative alone to deal with the nations. We sometimes feel that we want to see one group of people or one nation being dealt with. But God has given us responsibilities, and that responsibility is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, said Jesus. And he gives us that great encouragement. He says, Jesus is always with us to the very end of the age. And so the call is to persevere. We don't follow the ways of Esau and the Edomites. We reject those who reject God. 
We are careful in our relationships with unbelievers. We are careful with the grace of God that we do not despise what God has taught us. We are encouraged because as we read in Obadiah and as we read in the Psalms, and that is that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The Lord is working his purposes out. He is gathering his people. And we may be only a few in our particular locality at the moment, but God will be with us. He will encourage us. He will keep us. He will carry us through. We can rejoice and be glad in all that God has done. And that surely should give us encouragement in the day in which we live. We see how the generations sometimes have so turned their back on God and it's gone from one generation to another. Let's make sure that those with whom we have influence, that we can share with them the knowledge of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may the Lord add many to your church, to this church, that his name might be glorified in the day in which we live. For his name's sake. Amen.